a brief overview. I'm not going to actually have to give a lot of the context because Katrina has already given us a very good overview of the change in the um, population in Ireland that has occurred in the very recent, in the last decade or so, because we all know Ireland was a country of um, outward migration and became for a short time a country of very significant inward migration. Our population... Um, the census in 2006, we had 12% uh, of the population who reported themselves to be not of the white Irish majority. And, I mean, you can compare this to somewhere like the UK, where I think the percentage in 2001 was 8%. So here was Ireland suddenly booming up to um, 12%. I'll briefly look at cross-cultural communication in the healthcare uh, context. I'll explain what cultural competence is, um, again, in the clinical setting, and uh, look through some of my uh, research and the challenges and opportunities. I was going to give a case study, but I'll actually speed myself up a little bit and just say that I worked for six years in... Um, the acute hospital sector and then I worked for about six years in community and preventative medicine and I've spent the last five years working in public health medicine. Um, but during my time in community medicine I worked um, in a clinic that provided infectious disease screening for asylum seekers and this is obviously where my interest um, in this whole topic arose. Um, there was a particular young man from Angola who arrived in the hostel, we had no idea where, other than knowing that where he was from Angola and a rough estimate of his age, that's all we knew about him. And the hostel staff themselves told us that they thought, us, thought he was um, deaf and dumb. Um, now, we managed to establish that he wasn't deaf because he was responding to sounds. But because he was from Angola, we tried a Portuguese interpreter, which went nowhere. He couldn't respond to Portuguese. So then we um, got... Very, very fortunate to get somebody who spoke Lingala, um, and there was some communication going on there, so we knew he wasn't dumb. Um, but just observing his behaviour, um, I just knew that there was something that wasn't quite right, and certainly he needed, the nurse that worked with me was absolutely tremendous, terrific, and took care of him in terms of prompting him to eat, to dress, to get out of bed, to wash, etc., etc. And his behaviour became more and more erratic with these visual and auditory hallucinations. And we were very fortunate that we had access to a very good psychiatry service that had some degree of experience in dealing with people of different ethnicities and from very different experiences. Um, and so they um, admitted him and observed him. In the meantime, we discovered that he actually had family in Dublin and that he had been found wandering by the guards, had been admitted to an, a hospital in Dublin, had been discharged, I think, to the GNIB, the Garden National Immigration Bureau, who brought him up uh, probably to the Department of Justice first, and then he ended up in our hostel. Um, and when we discovered that he had a brother and a family where he had been living, we said, well, why is he here in the asylum process? And it turned out that they believed that he had been possessed by the spirit of a dead aunt, and they felt that this spirit was going to pass on to the children in the family, and they were terrified, and so they no longer wanted to have anything to do with him. So we entered into a very, very complex case where we were looking at how to treat him for an intellectual disability, we thought. We couldn't get any history as to how long his behaviour had been erratic and you know how long had he been unable to care for himself, essentially. Um, so we were making a diagnosis of a psychotic 
um, disorder and an intellectual disability. And he was treated with antipsychotics, but there was that huge, big pull. We had case conferences, we managed to get the brother in, but our, our views were so opposed and trying to find some common ground to help this man and to find out what was best for him. So I said I'd be brief and I wasn't. So it was very complex and I kind of said to myself, well, you know, I'm probably not the only doctor in Ireland who has limited experience or skill. And certainly from some of the um, encounters that the patients were having in general practice on an A&E and that they were recounting to me, I knew, well, I'm, I amn't the only doctor. And um, so um, Christina's gone through all of this, so I don't need to. But I just think the blue line, which is the people from the others, so outside of the EU15 and the US and the UK, although it has declined very dramatically, it's still much greater than it was back in the 80s. So um, it's something that isn't going away. Um, we've already gone through the applications for declaration of asylum. Um, the ethnicity profile we've already gone through. What was interesting as well, though, at the same time as the changes in the um, nationality and ethnic profile of um, the Irish population, there was a change amongst the doctors working in Irish hospitals. Um, so the non-consultant hospital doctors, the junior doctors. And we can see a huge... Now, this, uh, these figures are from the Postgraduate Medical and Dental Board, so their terminology is non-national, so that's, I'm sure um, many of us don't agree with that terminology. But anyway, um, the yellow line is that huge increase in non-national male um, junior doctors, and the light blue is non-national females. And, I mean, it's in the media, I think, um, repeatedly how... A lot of our hospitals wouldn't function unless we had doctors coming in from overseas. A lot of A&Es &E, in rural hospitals would actually have to close down. Um, so I was kind of thinking then, you know, it was all going through my mind, well, I'm having a lot of problems communicating with my patients. Um, are these doctors having problems communicating with Irish patients? And I was there going, well, you know, there must be a problem here. And I said, well, you know, the problem is that we're not known. Us doctors aren't known for our communication skills at the best of time. And we're not known for our awareness that there might actually be a problem there. Um, so just to look at some of the aspects of cross-cultural communication. Now, there are so many that I'm only going to briefly skim through this because I'd say people are probably aware of a lot of them. So obviously you have to consider all of the different uh, factors that influence somebody's cultural identity. So I had a big focus on ethnicity, but obviously, um, as Christine has already mentioned, things like age and gender, um, we were talking earlier about social class. Um, so all of these different um, uh, factors have to be uh, thought of when you're considering the cultural identity of the patient um, that you're dealing with. And you also have to consider, particularly in medicine, the worldviews that people may have that are so different to um, Western medicine's view. Um, so the fatalistic cultures, um, cultures where informed consent is not actually given by the patient, it's given by a family member or a community member. Um, whereas in Western medicine, we are legally obliged to get informed consent from the patient um, that we are treating. Um, and um, other issues about disclosure of information. Um, you know, some cultures would view it as extremely harmful to provide information to the patient. 
whereas we would view it as harmful not to inform the patient of what their diagnosis is and what their treatment options are and their prognosis, etc. So in cross-cultural communication, we just have to consider all of these values, beliefs and attitudes and how they influence a patient's explanatory model, which is often completely different to mine as a medical profession, as a trained doctor. Um, I screened um, asylum seekers for HIV and um, doing the pre-test counselling and then, and counselling isn't really right, but the pre-test discussion and then when you were giving the diagnosis to somebody that they were HIV positive and um, it was amazing the array of explanatory models that people had for HIV. I mean obviously I'm, my, I'm a scientist, I'm a doctor and it's all about a virus. You know, but for patients, it's about a lot more, and the virus may not even come into it. Um, and also, then, particularly, um, you need to understand how all of these cultural influences and values and beliefs affect behaviours. So, um, health behaviours, um, recognition of symptoms, illness behaviours, adopting the sick role. Um, in particular for me, it's now as a public health practitioner, the whole issue about lifestyle factors and, you know, simple things like nutrition, which can be very different in different cultures. Um, so then the other aspects of cross-cultural communication that we as doctors need to really uh, think about is the whole tendency for ethnocentricity and for othering, and not just the tendency amongst us all as humans, but also that whole thing um, about the, uh, the dominance of medical truth and scientific truth. And you know, the, what I've been taught and the, what I know as evidence-based medicine, um, you know, that's my perspective. It's not somebody else's. And, okay, I believe it's the truth, but somebody else may not. And I can't dismiss that other perspective. I can't say, well, I'm right and the others are wrong. Um, the whole issue then of stereotyping. Um, so I thought it was fascinating, the normal and the abnormal. And, you know, the characteristics of the normal Italian are bang, bang, bang. So every Italian is... You know, but we still have that tendency to stereotype um, and we need to be careful about that. And obviously then um, progressing on to problems with prejudice, discrimination and overt and covert racism. Um, because of the theme of the conference, I just put this um, slide in because there's a very interesting series of articles coming up in uh, PLOS Medicine in just recently started, end of May, beginning of June. There's a six-part series on migration and health, so it could be interesting for people. But as a doctor, when you're communicating with somebody, in Ireland, most um, people of a different ethnic background to you are going to be first generation. Um, so you have to consider that they have probably gone through a recent uh, migratory process and, you know, pre-departure reasons. Why did they have to leave their country? And um, for us in particular, we had, um, you know, aspects of torture, physical and psychological torture, um, and other stressors. And then the whole travel process. So what kind of impact has that had on somebody's health? Um, be it, you know, nutrition. You know, you hear about all the boat people being terribly un uh, malnourished and dehydrated. And... Um, and various aspects like that that have to be considered. And then in the destination country, we can't ignore the impact that migration has on health. 
So um, the whole, um, they were mentioned, Hillary, I think, went through them all earlier there, but about financial insecurity, unemployment, loss of identity, isolation, social exclusion, discrimination, racism. There's plenty of studies that have linked the effects of racism and health, so um, both at an individual and at an ecological level, um, morbidity and mortality that is as a result of racism experienced by people. Um, I think this um, quote, for me, encapsulates cross-cultural communication in a medical setting. I don't know how many people have read this wonderful book, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. Um, so this is a quote from Arthur Kleinman from the book, who's a psychiatrist and anthropologist in the US, and who Anne Fadiman sought a lot of advice and guidance from. She wrote a book about a Hmong child, her American doctors, and the collision of two cultures. And I would actually say it's the collision of three cultures. And it is a very powerful read, but it's actually, as a doctor, I found it very distressing as well. But what Arthur Kleinman said is you need to understand that as powerful an influence as the culture of the Hmong patient and her family is on this case, the culture of biomedicine is equally powerful. If you can't see that your own culture has its own set of interests, emotions, biases, how can you expect to deal successfully with someone else's culture? So that, to me, is kind of it in a nutshell. But the consequences that have been documented um, as a result of poor communication, you obviously have poorer access to health care, as Christina has um, exemplified. You know, if you can't understand the language that your medical provider is speaking, how can you call that accessible health care? Um, misdiagnoses, inadequate or incorrect treatment, frustration in both the part of the provider and the patient, Non-compliance, how can you expect somebody to comply with the treatment if they don't understand it, if you haven't explained the diagnosis to them in a way that they understand, and um, if you haven't explained treatment to them? Um, poor follow-up, people aren't going to participate, and also studies from America have shown um, that doctors with ethnic minority patients can tend to offer less follow-up, which is a bit concerning. And then for me as a public health doctor, um, low participation in preventative measures. Um, I, in Europe at the moment, there's pretty much an epidemic of measles. And in Ireland, we have ha ongoing outbreaks here in Ireland at the moment. And most of these outbreaks are occurring in two communities, ethnic minority communities, particularly the Roma population, but also then in... Um, communities of conscientious objectors and that's certainly the most recent outbreak here in Ireland has been amongst um, children whose parents um, didn't believe in vaccination. Also complaints and litigation are a consequence and what is really interesting I was listening to the radio, Radio 1 um, on Wednesday, the one o'clock news and our ombudsman was um, providing examples from her annual report of 2010 and she gave quite a distressing story of a Bangladeshi man who died and that missed, uh, poor communication was a major factor in um, his death. Um, but ultimately, what the concern is, is that you know, poor health outcomes can be the result of poor communication between doctor and patient. So I'm moving on then to thinking, well, yeah, you know, I really do think this is important and we should be doing something about this in Ireland. 
So cultural competence is uh, defined by Cross et al. in 1989. This is the definition that's most often used and a lot of definitions derive from this. But what I think this definition sets out is that cultural competence occurs at very different levels. So it has to occur at the level of the system, the organisation, the structures within a system and organisation, within professional groups and then within the individual. So I suppose what I was focusing on was the level of competence within the individual and to a certain extent within the medical profession as well. And this uh, quote from Richardson is what I really like because I think, it, again, it's a sentence that puts together. And the cultural competence is the medical profession's responsibility of competence, respect and beneficence that enables effective functioning in the context of cultural differences. And I think that's really important. And, you know, it's about respect and beneficence and not just our interpretation of what beneficence is because Western bioethics can often cause more problems than um, it solves. And if you look then to look at the theoretical models of cultural competence, somebody described it as a bewildering array of models and it certainly was when I was trying to get my head around them all. Um, But generally you're looking at models that um, address Um, somebody's ability, their attitude and their ability to be aware and open, their knowledge of culture and health and all the influences and um, very generic type of knowledge and then skills, skills in being able to work with the patient and understand what their worldview is, what their perspective is, what their understanding is. And really, you know, cultural competence applies to every patient It's not just about ethnicity. I suppose my focus was on ethnicity because that's where my background um, was coming from. But, you know, every interaction between a doctor and a patient is a cross-cultural exchange. And again, it involves three cultures. So the doctor's culture, the patient's culture, and that awful culture of medicine slap bang in the middle. Um, So cultural competency training then, the objective is to increase the awareness and sensitivity. This is the cornerstone of cultural competency training. It's about changing people's (coughs) attitudes, about getting people to question and to think and to reflect Um, and then to gain some knowledge but then to put it all together into a skill. And generally all the models take a learner from a level of incompetence to a level of competence And I suppose the one thing that was said to me, um, and I think it might have been by Arthur Kleinman, I can't remember, um, but it was somebody over in the States and he said, but just remember, you can never be 100% competent. I mean, culture is such a fluid and a dynamic thing and things are changing and shifting. And so you could never, ever say that you are competent to deal with every culture and every cross-cultural interaction because each one is going to be very different. And... In medical education, medical education is all about creating experts. And medical education, I know things may be changing a bit, but it's all about giving knowledge. Knowledge, facts, and, you know... And it's fair enough, you can't have a doctor out there who doesn't know what hypertension is or what diabetes is or what epilepsy is and doesn't know the scientific basis for it all. Um, But the focus in medical education was very much on creating experts. So the early models of cultural competency training that were being used was just about providing knowledge. So the lady comes in, she's from Ethiopia, I'm telling you now she's going to do A, B, C and believe X, Y and Z. And then you have a man from Sudan and he's going to believe QRS and do LMN. 
And you can apply that then, that cookbook, you can apply that to every patient that you see from Sudan or from Ethiopia or what have you. Um, thankfully, there has been a shift to the kind of cultural sensibility model, which is about creating that openness and awareness by questioning yourself, questioning your attitudes, and looking at your perspective and understanding that, you know, your way of looking at things is not the only way and it's not necessarily the right way. We all have our own perspectives. Um, so content then is to address attitude, knowledge and skills. There are multiple methods of delivery and unfortunately cultural competency training is quite a new thing. Um, the literature review that I did, most articles came from the last five years. Um, so it's new. And content hasn't, I mean, there is no definitive content, and there's no definitive method of delivery. But most people would agree that you want to look at interactive participatory approaches um, and that allow for self-reflection. That the cultural expert model of sitting people down and giving didactic lectures isn't going to work. So my hypothesis now has moved on to cultural competency training is needed and should be provided. So I wanted to explore the need for cultural competency training of the medical profession to identify barriers and to make recommendations. So I undertook a literature review. I um, undertook some in-depth interviews with key informants. Um, I had a gatekeeper who is extremely knowledgeable and um, experienced in this area. And together we drew up a list of informants. And um, they were people who uh, carried out research in the area, who provided healthcare services to ethnic minority patients, who were advocates for ethnic minority patients, and who provided training in cultural competency. I then also carried out a survey of specialist registrars um, in the four main bodies, so the Royal College of Physicians, the Royal College of Surgeons, the Irish College of General Practitioners, and the Irish Psychiatric Training Committee. And my aim then was to bring all of this together to make some recommendations. So just to skim through some of the results of the qualitative interviews, I asked one or two direct questions. So one of them was, is there a need for culturally competent medical professionals? You know, my great hypothesis, my light bulb that was flashing away up here. And resolute agreement across um, all um, informants. So yes, yes, no questions. They have to be unquestionable. And this was from a medical doctor that I interviewed. If you're going to refuse to consider the cultural context from where somebody comes from, then you're not going to treat the person properly. And then they gave me a myriad of examples of why there was a need for uh, cultural competence. And this was one particular uh, quote from somebody. They, the patients, had very, very negative and weary kind of heartbroken accounts of Irish healthcare, particularly general practice. So I think that really was quite a sad um, comment. Um, the informants identified a series of barriers to the provision of culturally competent care, both at the system and organisational level and at the individual level. So I'm just going to focus on some of the individual provider level barriers. So obviously the language barrier. So the message from that research is that language is a major barrier for accessing services and for participating. But that language, that the communication barrier wasn't just about the language barrier, that there was evidence that this, you know, was a much broader cultural 
um, encounter. And so um, this informant was um, telling me about research with African women who were fluent in English, but who still had difficulties communicating with their healthcare provider. And it seemed that there was just a limited understanding amongst healthcare providers about this bigger barrier, that it wasn't just about language. Um, so they, the doctors, just think it's more of a language thing, and they think that they, the patients, will understand our world, which I think is a very good quote. Um, there was evidence of a lack of skill amongst healthcare providers, um, including um, us doctors, um, and I think this quote is just fantastic. The multidisciplinary team working around HIV-AIDS became associated with working with foreigners, so they were called down towards an A&E because they were the ones who knew how to talk to, talk to the foreigners. Bizarre stuff, and bizarre indeed, and it was happening. Um, and then the whole notion that um, there was an absence of a patient-centred approach. And there's a lot of literature about patient-centredness and cultural competence and where they overlap, where they're similar and where they're dissimilar. But I think really you can't be culturally competent if you don't have a patient-centred approach. Um, so another quote, someone walks into your surgery and it's about their health and well-being. And their health and well-being is affected by physical, social, psychological, environmental issues. This is about people and not bodies. Um, and then the one thing that was really disappointing um, was the failure to use interpreters. Um, that came out so strongly. Um, so many of the doctors are very reluctant to use interpreters. And say if the family comes in with a the child, they'll use the child, which was very um, disappointing to hear. And then somebody gave examples of um, all the effort that some of the patients went to to try and overcome this absence of an interpreter, bringing a dictionary, practicing the night before they went to see their GP, practicing and trying to learn phrases, body language, gestures and everything. Um, so, I mean, they did point out, the informants did point out, you know, that there are a lot of reasons why doctors don't use interpreters. So yes, some of it is, I couldn't be bothered. It's going to take too much time, it's going to cost me money. But the other problems are the problems that Christina has alluded to, you know, well, not alluded to, has described, you know, the fact that interpreters in Ireland are not trained. And often you can have, say, a Roma lady with a male Romanian interpreter, and you're just, you know, you're causing more problems. And so when I asked another direct question, is there a need for training? And um, everybody said yes. Um, and specifically a postgraduate level was brought out because that's where my focus was. And I think it's really, really relevant, even the patient accepting your diagnosis and your treatment. So then when I asked about barriers to the provision of training, one, well, medical doctors didn't really get it, didn't get that there was a need for this kind of training. Um, so how do you explain to doctors that the biomedical model is limited, that you have to look at other components? And then a bit of an attitude problem, and I love this one. There are cynics who just think that it's just gobbledygook. And the fact of priority, um, you know, it comes up time and time again that amongst all of the training priorities, cultural competency training is something that's way down the um, pecking order. Um, time and money, um, and that has now become an even bigger problem. So uh, money, there isn't any. Um, and time, this was a huge issue because um, the trainers that I spoke to um, had provided training that was multidisciplinary, so all were invited. 
but I think one trainer had one medical person, a psychiatrist who was very interested, very motivated, very committed. She wanted to attend all of the sessions. She could only attend the first one. She wasn't released. She wasn't given the time. And that's a big problem, providing doctors with the time during the day to attend training. Um, a question then was brought up, well, yes, they need training, but who's going to train them? Um, it's difficult to find people to train them. And then all of the key informants, and I'm not quite sure that I agree with this one, that um, you know, it has to be by doctors for doctors. I, you know, I, I don't agree with that, but I do agree with the reason that they were saying that is that you know, it has to be peer-led, it has to come from inside the fraternity for it to land and for people to say, okay, so it's about that acceptance and about awareness that you know, if it's another doctor telling them and not a public health doctor, may I add, it would need to be a clinical doctor, um, you know, that it will land. Um, so the delivery of training, I won't go through this. Um, essentially, there isn't a cookbook. Um, the whole aspect of getting them to turn up and trying to make it that they understand, so delivering it in a way that's relevant to them. And as somebody said, bringing the attitudinal stuff in the back door. Um, and the ultimate thing was, though, that there aren't easy answers, and the literature is the exact same. And there are no easy answers as to how exactly your content and your delivery... I then looked at the specialist registrars who were in training. I wanted to look at how much training they were receiving in this topic area, establish a baseline of cultural competence, and explore attitudes and barriers. So, unfortunately, a very poor response rate, which I think was a reflection, um, you know, the literature would say that doctors tend not to respond to a survey in the first instance, and particularly if they have no interest in the topic. And um, I'm, I'm only assuming that that may be a big factor in the response rate. But most of the training subspecialties were um, represented. So in the physicians and the surgeons, I had most of the training subspecialties. I had adult and child psychiatrists and then um, the general practitioners. Um, most of them were in their first or second year, median age of 31, the, fe the feminization of medicine, 64% female, and now this one, 92% Irish, um, and 90% had undertaken their undergraduate training in Ireland. But nearly three quarters had lived for some period of time outside of Ireland, most of them short durations, less than six months, but two-thirds of um, period spent living outside of Ireland involved providing healthcare. Um, and then 45% said they were fluent in another language, but I have to add a little caveat to that. There was quite a lot of people saying they were fluent in Irish. Now, whether they were fluent or not, I don't know. And the relevance of being fluent in Irish in healthcare provision, I'm fluent in Irish and I've never used Irish once in my career to date. Um, but what was interesting, I asked, how often in the past year have you provided uh, service to somebody of a different ethnic background? And so two-thirds were providing a service on at least a weekly basis and one-third on a daily basis. Previous training was very uncommon, and uh, I'm very surprised that a quarter of them were receiving um, training in um, higher specialist training, because I certainly didn't. I'm doing my higher specialist training, and there hasn't been a word of it. Um, but those who had previous training thought it was very relevant or very relevant. 80% thought it was relevant or very relevant. And when I asked, um, is it important... Again, eight, over 80% thought it was uh, very important or important. Looking at baseline competence, um, this is a distribution of the knowledge score. So it's, it is um, slightly negatively 
skewed, right? Am I right? I'm not the academic going back. Oh, is that negatively skewed or is that positively skewed? Come on, somebody who's an academic. Positively skewed, I knew I was wrong there. So that's positively skewed, and that tends to fit with a lot of literature that says that um, doctors, um, when they're estimating their ability, they tend to be really hard on the knowledge thing, because it's about the facts, and if I can't recount all the facts, well then, ooh, I better not score myself quite so highly. Um, skill scores are drifting upwards which will be um, consistent and then attitude scores were the highest but what was really interesting was there was a little bit of a kind of a trick um, built into the survey when I asked about skill I asked were you skilled in the use of interpreters and in the ability to identify when an interpreter was appropriate to be used oh yes 80% of them were very skilled or something ridiculous like that because when it came to attitude about 80% were very comfortable using a family member as an interpreter. And 80% or so were very comfortable speaking in English with a patient whose first language wasn't English. So that level of skill in interpreting did not match. Um, so I think there was a definite overestimation there. The challenges that they identified, they identified challenges at three levels. The level of the patient, the doctor and the system. And there was a big emphasis here on the patient so the patient being unable to speak English. So not about, I'm not able to speak the patient's language, it's the patient can't speak English. And their different cultural norms and beliefs, so it's they, you know, the othering, they're different, and the different expectations of healthcare. And in fairness, they did um, acknowledge their own um, failure to recognise or to understand or appreciate the relationship, but there was this very heavy focus on lack of knowledge. Um, and then this lack of skill or uncertainty. And again, this lack of time, they really were um, very frustrated by the lack of time. They had no time to attend any kind of training, never mind this um, soft kind of training. Uh, the fact that they weren't provided with training in the very first place and that there were no interpreter services. Um, so when I asked about barriers to introducing training into their curriculum, time, again, the big one, Apathy and disinterest, and it was apathy and disinterest amongst themselves, amongst their peers, their colleagues, their consultants, and their professional bodies. Um, priority, um, it wasn't a priority topic for them. As one of them said, you know, this isn't going to be examined, so you're not going to have people interested in training. Um, lack of appropriate trainers was um, identified by the registrars as well as the key informants. You know, they were there going, well, fine, yes, we need training, but who's going to train us? Um, finance, I didn't know what they meant by finance. Was this finance for the system or for themselves? And then the curricular challenges. They listed a lot of problems with the curriculum, and certainly the overcrowded curriculum um, was a big one. Um, so the limitations of my study, and um, my key informant non-responders were more likely to be from NGOs. So it could have been that maybe I would have got some other perspective, but I did get saturation on everything I asked other than how to deliver training. Um, and I think, you know, my initial concern was that a lot of people I interviewed, maybe half the um, group were working within the health services. And I was afraid that perhaps they might hold back a bit, but they didn't. <laughs> they let go. I think they had a great time uh, releasing all their frustrations. And the SPR response rate, obviously, um, was in the order of about 25%, so it's not generalisable. But this wasn't a rigorous academic um, uh, 
exercise. Um, you know, this was something to inform policy. It was a needs assessment. And for the, I, it was deliberately set up that I wouldn't be able to identify responders or non-responders. So I can't say for sure, was there a difference between the non-responders and the responders? I do suspect very strongly that responders were people who were interested in the topic um, or people who were experiencing particular challenges. And to experience particular challenges mean you need to be aware to some extent. I mean, there'll be a lot of people who won't even realise the challenges that they're facing because they don't have that awareness. Um, and obviously, this was a self-report competence, uh, clinical cultural competence, and you get into the whole areas that Christina discussed about observation. You know, you could look at observation as a methodology, but I know myself from some other researcher who's working over in Geneva, she can't get anybody to participate in an observational study. An observation obviously comes with all its own limitations. You know, the Hawthorne effect, and people may, you may witness an interaction between a doctor and patient which looks really good, but the next day you may see something completely different. Um, and um, social desirability bias is obviously a problem with these kind of surveys, and certainly the attitude uh, responses had less of a spread, which suggested an element of social desirability. But my recommendations are, yes, pr provide training to all qualified doctors, but you need to be creative to um, find ways to encourage uptake of training. You also need to provide training to all other healthcare staff and healthcare management. And this was a point that was brought up by several people, the informants and the registrars, that, you know, staff who are new to the country need some form of induction as well. You know, they're not going to understand the cultural nuances necessarily of the Irish and the different Irish amongst the Irish. Um, intercultural team working is an area that was really um, highlighted as a need for training, that there were a lot of difficulties, not just in communication between doctor and patient, but amongst... Um, healthcare workers themselves. Um, uh, there was, seemed to be a lot of fragmented efforts going on around the country, so there needs to be an audit and evaluation of what is currently going on. But if we're going to implement training, we have to um, support and resource frontline staff, so there's no point training people to work with interpreters if they then arrive and there is no interpreter for them to work with. Um, and I think we need to... Um, open our eyes and address racism and discrimination within the health services. I, there were some findings, I haven't presented them today, but you know, I think it's time we opened our eyes. Um, do I have, should I shut up now? Um, yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just want to say a thanks to, um, it's necessary, my light bulb, no question mark, um, but I do want to acknowledge Professor Like in the uh, States. He designed the clinical cultural competency questionnaire that I used and he allowed me to modify it and he helped me with the modification and I just want to acknowledge him, obviously all the participants and the patients that I've met along the way. Thank you. Thank you.